This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. From Permanent Things, Russell Kirk's Centenary, a symposium on the conservative thinkers' enduring ideas, this is R.R. R. Reno on the politics of the imagination. Versions of this presentation and others appear in the January 2019 issue of The New Criterion. I first came upon Russell Kirk some 30 years ago when I was um, foraging among the political philosophers for some help to understand why I was rejecting the liberalism that only recently had seemed so obvious and sensible and correct to me. Kirk gave me little satisfaction at the time. He's an essayist, not a theorist. He's a man of letters by his own description, not a builder of systems. I was at the time a graduate student and had not yet read deeply in John Henry Newman, which meant that I was susceptible to the lure of theory and system. As a consequence, Kirk's reliance on aphorism, image, and episode led me to dismiss him as a journalistic occasional writer rather than a philosophical heavyweight. I haven't changed my mind significantly uh, about what sort of writer Kirk was. In his wonderfully quirky memoir, The Sword of the Imagination, he describes himself as a literary knight errant, <laughs> slaying dragons, hacking orcs, and freeing beautiful maidens as best he could for over half a century. What has changed is my sense of what drives politics. As Richard Weaver wrote in the first sentence of the first chapter of Ideas Have Consequences, every man participating in a culture has three levels of conscious reflection. His specific ideas about things, his general beliefs or convictions, and his metaphysical dream of the world. By Weaver's reckoning, the distempers of our time flow from the poverty of our dreams. And in this, I would submit, Kirk agreed, which is why he devoted himself to the politics of the imagination. And he was right to do so. After all, we can only vote for what we can imagine. Now, I'm not a Kirk scholar and cannot pretend to stand before you as a reliable interpreter of his vast body of work. Instead, I propose to draw upon Kirk to essay my own reflections on the state of our political <coughs> imagination. Now, it's my reckoning that populism reflects a rebellion, not so much against particular policies or principles, but instead against the dominant motifs of the post-war consensus. Now, I got to say that one of the things I found teaching as by the time I got to 2010, I had to explain to students that post-war meant post-World War II. <laughs> <laughs> I think in this crowd, this crowd, I'm okay. George H.W. Bush emphasized one of the leading motifs of this post-war consensus in his speech to the United Nations shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Soviet Empire was crumbling, and Bush envisioned a new horizon. And here's what he said. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open minds. Now this notion of freedom as openness and as a transcending of limits has, I would submit, dominated the imagination of the West for more than 70 years. And Bush, the elder Bush, a veteran of World War II, presumed the consensus of this generation, of his own generation. According to this consensus, Fascism, Nazism, and Japanese militarism arose from closed-minded forms of life and thought. The same was thought to be true for the communism of the East. Though political resolve and military action may have been necessary to defeat and deter the threats posed by these closed societies, the deeper response was thought to require a cultural reconstruction of the West for somebody of Bush's generation. The thinking here is that we must banish narrow-mindedness and cultivate a spirit of openness. Instead of piety and loyalty, which were thought to be fueling fascism, we need critical questioning. It became a, a, one of those God terms of uh, post-war era, critical questioning. Society, by this way of thinking, should loosen up and allow for greater freedom and experimentation. 
Now, the spirit of openness played an obvious role in the 1960s, but it was widely evident from 1945 onward. The literature of the 1950s is full of criticisms of middle-class conformity. In The Lonely Crowd, David Reisman and his fellow researchers anguished over the ascendancy of the so-called other-directed personality and its impulse towards conformity. The Organizational Man was another best-selling title. Furthermore, in the years after World War II, there were some social science scientists who created Erzat's theories about the existence of a so-called authoritarian personality. And they publicized these theories in a widely cited book of that name. And theorizing of the authoritarian personality called for a new pedagogy to ensure that the rising generation of Americans would be open, flexible, and non-judgmental. The authoritarian personality purported to explain fascism. And in retrospect, the Freudian theory and the dreadful me methodology behind the pseudoscience of, in that project is today indefensible. But the conclusions are largely accepted as dogma. Fascism, communism, and racism are not, by this way of thinking, caused by fervent belief in falsehoods. These sorts of perversions arise, by this way of thinking, when people have fervent beliefs of any sort. Therefore, if we care about the future of humanity, again, this is the consensus, if we care about the future of humanity, and we must educate the young toward unbelief and non-judgmentalism, cultivating in them what I would call a negative piety, one that prizes the open mind as the highest good. A similar project of promoting ever greater, greater openness has been at work in our economic thinking as well. By the 1980s, we became convinced that regulations need to be relaxed and tax burdens lowered so that the animal spirits could drive economic growth. And then, after 1989, we thought that borders should be made more porous and more open to commerce. Also, words like innovation and creativity became the buzzwords at business schools. Now, we tend to think of cultural transgression as a left-wing phenomenon, while the motifs of openness in economic life are thought to be right-wing. Silicon Valley represents their explicit fusion, which has always, I would submit, always been latent. Facebook's early motto was move fast and break things. The key to spectacular financial success, in other words, was thought to involve rule-breaking that doesn't wait for the regulators to catch up. Just as transgression in art, literature, and culture is at places like the Brooklyn Museum of Art thought to promote a more diverse and inclusive society. From the 1980s through today, leading opinion has insisted that this is essential, openness, transgression, rule-breaking is essential for the spiritual, moral, and economic well-being of our country. Now, it would be tedious to recount the trajectory from a defensible emphasis on critical thinking to today's pedagogy of deconstruction. It's enough to observe that while our universities have at times suffered from indigestion, for the most part, they have happily swallowed every aspect of anti-Western and multicultural ideology. <clears throat> That's because, though sometimes regretted as too extreme, Radicalism and transgression suit the liberal imagination, which prizes openness and freedom from limits and wars against constraining permanence and dutiful obedience. This also explains why our academic and cultural establishments treat libertarians, such as Tyler Cowen, as clubbable, while the slightest hint of an insufficient support for gay marriage gets you blackballed in our cultural politics. It's the metaphysical dream of life without limits and behavior without boundaries that governs in our larger consensus, not particular party allegiances. When it comes to the economic sphere, I'm not interested in debating the merits of economic deregulation, lower tax rates, free trade deals, and other efforts to open up our economy, all of which I supported in the 80s, 90s, and aughts. It's not my purpose to hammer out a party platform for 2018. Instead, I simply want to draw attention to the shape of our public imagination in these early decades of the 21st century. 
To a striking degree, we've coalesced around motifs of openness. So I think of words like critical thinking, diversity, creativity, and innovation. But these are various ringing in the changes on open trade, open borders, and open minds. In the service of these ideals, we've largely adopted a deregulatory premise, one that is interested in loosening things up. This mentality is so powerful that for those of us committed to preserving the authority of tradition in higher education, we naturally gravitate towards arguments for academic freedom, another openness motif, or even calling for viewpoint diversity, yet another variation on the theme of openness. Now, it seems to me that as Americans, the allure of openness is understandable. We're shaped by the open horizon of the frontier, the open, often raucous debates of our electoral system, and the open personality encouraged by our democratic culture. Nevertheless, it's important to see how one-sided and dysfunctional our political imagination has become. And here, Russell Kirk can help us, because his outlook on life was based on a positive, affirmative piety, not a negative and critical one. He prized love, which seeks to close upon its object, not openness and the lore of the limitless. On one occasion, Kirk wrote, the conservative impulse is a man's desire to walk in the paths that his father followed. It is a woman's desire for the sureties of hearth and home. So here's my way of putting that point. True conservatism is nourished by our perennial human desire for a noble inheritance, for a patrimony worth honoring, serving, and passing down to the next generation. Furthermore, Conservatism is galvanized by our quest for a place of repose, a home in which we do not need to earn or merit our right of residence. To these themes of home and inheritance, I would add a further transcendent affirmation. As Kirk puts it in one of his canons of conservatism, I think it's the first canon of conservatism, a divine intent rules society as well as conscience. In my terms, the affairs of a nation touch upon ultimate things. In a conservative imagination, our common home and shared inheritance are perfumed with a sacred aroma. Now, as I look back over the last three years, I'm struck by the salience of Kirk's characteristic emphases. It is obvious that an open borders globalism runs against the desire for a secure home and that multiculturalism seeks to convince us that our inheritance is ignoble, not noble. In subtle ways, moreover, today's wonkish public culture reduces politics to interests, ignoring or even ruling out the reality of our sentiments, which are, as Kirk recognized, more social than Benthamite and they, our sentiments are, moreover, archaic, as Kirk also recognized. The imagination, the political imagination, is quite capable of heroic ardor, as well as vulnerable to debased passions, obviously. It is, moreover, religious, even if only in a natural sense of that term. One does not need to have a PhD in political science to see that Donald Trump has exploited the growing unpopularity of the motifs of openness that George H.W. Bush took for granted back in 1990. He promises to build a big, beautiful wall on the Mexican border. And this poses a powerful <clears throat> symbolic challenge to our ruling class and its loyalty to motifs of openness. It is a challenge to the dominant imagination. It is not a, a policy proposal offered to be debated. The same is true for Trump's assaults on NAFTA and other trade deals, as well as his ostentatious violations of political correctness, the punitive cultural regime best understood as obligatory and enforced openness. Kind of a, just as you can be a bohemian Tory, you can, I think, be whatever, a punitive libertarian. Everybody has to be uh, open, and if you're not, you're going to be punished for it. 
In contradistinction, moreover, to nearly every other 21st century American politician, Trump allies himself with old line dying industries, paradigmatically coal, rather than the new, vibrant, creative, and globalized sectors such as media and technology. It really is striking how politically he allies himself with what is old and not with what is new. Now, just as he insists upon motifs of clothes, of reconsolidation and borders rather than openness and limitlessness. He does not celebrate diversity or innovation, two leading motifs of openness that fill the pages of university and corporate propaganda. I think you can easily imagine the boilerplate. You know, I came up with this one. Stanford University promotes the diversity that sustains the creative educational culture needed to build an innovative and inclusive future for the whole world. I mean, you, these things, I mean, you can get, get bots to write this sort of stuff. And of course, the Make America Great Again slogan is a direct appeal to the desire for a noble, heroic inheritance. A similar pattern is evident in Trump's major speeches. At the Republican National Convention, Ted Cruz gave a classic conservative inflected speech in praise of openness. He must have used the word freedom 100 times. It was sort of Reaganism on steroids. Trump's nomination acceptance speech barely mentioned the word. I think he, I'm not sure he used the word freedom at all. He may have used liberty twice. He emphasized instead reconsolidation and solidarity. On his 2017 visit to Poland, Trump gave an extraordinary speech in Warsaw. Between 1939 and 1945, that city witnessed some of the most brutal episodes of the war. The ascendant political imagination of the post-war era dictates speaking of those times as lessons about the dangers of totalitarianism, nativism, anti-Semitism, and other perversions, all of which call for the West to rally around the virtues of an open society and an open mind. Trump in Warsaw did the opposite. He used the occasion to praise the heroism of the Polish resistance that rose up in that city in a futile attempt to earn their own freedom rather than receiving it from the advancing Soviet army. It was a speech meant to satisfy a Pole's desire to use echoing Kirk's word, walk in the paths his father followed. Paths all the more to be cherished because sanctified with blood. I could say as an aside that Trump's utterly unselfconscious use of the image of blood as a sacred seal in a speech in Eastern Europe is itself a shocking transgression of post-war taboos. His most recent speeches praise the self-interest of other nations, a gesture towards the desire we have for a home of our own. Now, I have no interest in claiming Trump as a true conservative. My point is analytical. When we step back from the kabuki dance of denunciation, from protests about his supposed unfitness for office, and from the elaborate pseudo-legal battles surrounding his administration, it's obvious why Trump generates outrage. He presses a Kirkian agenda of home, inheritance, and patriotic loyalty, which as Kirk knew, is entirely at odds with dominant liberal ways of thinking. Home, inheritance, and piety towards the sacred. In the post-war imagination, these are always reframed as authoritarian, crypto-fascist temptations. And not surprisingly, since 2016, we've seen an explosion of tweets, articles, and books evoking some version of Hitler's return. The alternative to openness by this way of thinking is not love's devotion, but instead tyranny and death camps. And this is what we're told again and again. It really is kind of striking the way that in the popular press, or not just the popular press, but sort of highbrow commentary, the 1930s are right on people's minds. Now, last year, Trump tossed a hand grenade into the establishment bunker by calling out football players who would not stand for the national anthem. His political intuition was simple. The sorts of people who vote want to see our flag honored. 
The political imagination that dominates our times, however, sees things otherwise. It regards protest and transgression as always positive. They are thought to make society more open, more accepting, more diverse, and thus more just. There is nothing more American than the spirit of protest, we're told. And in any event, Trump's criticisms are recast as dog whistles for racists. Again, the elite political imagination does not see in this controversy what I think Kirk could see, which is a desire for home and a desire for loyalty to an, an inheritance. Instead, it consistently sees nativism and racism. Now, Kirk saw himself as a defender of the imagination, and that's certainly true. But I would submit that he misjudged the true nature of the political terrain of the post-war era. He thought that the adversary advocated politics without imagination, a tendency supported by what he called vulgarized pragmatism, born of a utilitarian habit of mind, or what he also what he called the drug of ideology, which promises a machine-like <coughs> political precision that brings justice automatically. <coughs> so sort of politics without prudence. Uh, instead, we have the drug of ideology. These are both dangers, <coughs> to be sure. But cultural and, and economic liberals have an imagination as well, as George H.W. Bush's hymn to openness before the United Nations makes clear. It is at root a metaphysical dream of anarchic order. The multiculturalist can be pragmatic or ideological or even both at once. But at a deeper level, he imagines a future without a center, a multiculture that ensures life under the sign of choice rather than loyalty and its inevitable implication of the need for sacrifice. Something similar is at work in free market thinking. Friedrich Hayek, who I would submit after 1989, did wind up dominating the Republican Party's imagination after 1989. Friedrich Hayek was very taken by the possibilities of spontaneous order, which is also an anarchic ideal, an ideal of order without an arche, without a center or governing purpose. Now, all of us feel the tectonic plates that are shifting under our feet. The best thinkers reach for broad characterizations. The nationalists, for example, are challenging the globalists. The ordinary somewheres are rebelling against the elite anywheres. These dichotomies do not merely reflect policy differences. They are best understood as a bifurcation in the Western political imagination. One brought about by the striking return of something like Russell Kirk's often fanciful but almost always astute intuitions about the essential foundations of a sane society. We've endured a long season dominated by the metaphysical nightmare of Hitler's return and the counter dream of limitless openness. These days, populism suggests that our ascendant nightmare is changing. Many of us now worry about an orphan's existence with no place to stand in a world of limitless competition. To my mind, this nightmare is not unfounded. We need a home in which we can find repose. The political importance of our time is to encourage metaphysical dreams worthy of our distinctive cultural inheritance and national home. Thank you. Questions? Uh, Donald Trump's, uh, just on this simple point, Do the song Donald Trump likes to play at his rallies is this Rolling Stones song titled, <laughs> You Can't Always Get What You Want. Right. <laughs> but if you try sometimes, you just might get what you want. <laughs> is that true? Is that song, true? He played it at his inauguration. I don't know why. It makes no sense. But <laughs> 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 yeah. You mentioned... Uh, when you, were, when you were delineating this philosophy of openness, uh, you, you made reference to the nation. And it struck me, or earlier today we were talking about Kirk's defense of localism, but it does seem to me to adequately confront everything you were talking about, this 
globalism, the sense of uh, an emancipated world without limits, conservatives really have to become the defenders of the nation as well as the defenders of the kinds of freedoms and traditions we associate with local self-government. And um, I think there's still a resistance in part of the community, uh, especially among traditionalist conservatives, paleoconservatives, to the language of the nation, that they see it as synonymous with centralization and concentration of power. But um, if we're really talking about a dream, let's say Habermas's dream of, of uh, global citizenship, or the head of the Jesuit order, Arturo Souza, just said at the uh, Synod that we have to abolish nations and replace it with multinational citizenship in the name of Jesus Christ. And I, I don't know where that is in the gospel, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, in any case, maybe Rusty, you could say a word about that, how an intelligent conservatism of limits and obligation and home conjugates on the one hand the need for home, the broadest sense is enduring national attachments and in the sort of micro sense of uh, our local attachments. Well, those are, I've certainly encountered similar concerns about the nation. You know, how could 330 people be any kind of, um, you know, community to which you could be loyal? But my response being always, well, but it is. Um, at least in my experience traveling yeah. in our country, is it is actually a moral community. Yeah. Um, which is a kind of shocking it's shocking that we have succeeded in doing that and to squander that in pursuit of these utopian dreams of a post-national world would be criminal, it seems to me. And also, I think part of what, I mean, we've had wonderful conversation about the importance of prudence in politics. I think it's very important to make sure that you, you aim to solve the problems that you actually have. And the problems we have really have to do with really gargantuan economic interests and entities that you know are now that now threaten um, our capacity to function as political agents you know it, when Amazon can set up tax competition you know throughout the country and you can do tax arbitrage globally as a as a giant corporation this would suggest that we need we need to actually strengthen the political agency of the nation state in our time in order to master those globalized powers and to make them accountable to the common good. Mark? There's a lot in your talk, Rusty, that uh, seems right to me. It seems that um, Kirk was a conservative, the central ballast of the Trump phenomenon is wanting to conserve the American nation against disintegration into globalism or something of that kind. I can well imagine that he would be a supporter of <coughs> Trump in 2016. But I wanted to ask about the fact that Trump himself is a transgressor. Uh, in fact, that's what's most noticeable about him. You yourself said that he transgressed certain pieties when he spoke about blood in Eastern Europe. He tramples across all of the strictures of politeness with respect to political correctness. Some people call him Trump the destroyer. He seems to be smashing down lots of walls that had been built by the left uh, over the last 30, 40 years. And so I'm sort of wondering how that goes into your, into your template. I sort of also want to know how the alt-right kind of thing fits in, because those are people who seem to do nothing but seek to destroy the lines of <coughs> polite mannerliness that are the, the most optimistic way of understanding PC. Because that phenomenon looks like there has been a season of felt increasing creeping uh, limitations, that somehow we were being channeled into a kind of cattle chute to be executed by the forces of the left, and there's a rebellion to break out of this foreordained fate. All of that seems transgressive to me, not centristic. It seems like it's a rebellion against the, the iron cage that had been constructed. 
We're in a paradoxical situation. I mean, I think my analysis is that the post-war consensus, which, like I already said, you know, I, I think the Reagan economic um, liberalization was necessary and bore very good fruit because it, it addressed a problem of an over-consolidated economy. And Civil Rights Act 1965 addressed the problem of an over-consolidated culture, if you will. The problem is, is that that consensus has become both more rigid, more unthinking, kind of more dogmatic, and also less and less relevant to the actual problems that we have. So we're in this odd position where in order to preserve the things that, that need to be preserved, we're going to have to join a kind of counter-revolution against, against a ruling class that's insisting that the greatest problem we face as a society is white nationalism, say. When I look at our society and say, our, the greatest threat to our society is disintegration and the loss of any kind of civic unity. How do you, how do you function as a conservative in that environment, right? So there's an element of radicalism in basically in taking a stance against the, the established consensus. There's always an element of radicalism in that. And I don't see any way around that. I think you have to... Um, to make up your mind about what the greatest threats are to the common good, and you have to break down the resistance to actually, I mean, we only have permission to talk about what these problems are. It's just crazy. Uh, we got to have a united country. Immediately, the politically correct person says, united around what? That sounds like patriarchy to me. That sounds like a restoration of sort of white privilege or what have you. So we really can't even get past square one. So something has to give if we're allowed to actually engage in a conversation of, I think somebody mentioned like Huntington, uh, which I think is the pressing question, is who are we? Who are we, and who has a right to be among the we? Which is essentially the question about borders. So Mark, I'm sympathetic. I, I find myself very nervous. That's why I ended by saying to the alt-right, our job is to make sure we, we provide people with a vision of home and inheritance that's worthy of our nation's traditions and not unworthy of Rusty, I was thinking of um, Alan Bloom as you were talking his book, The Closing of the American Mind, where, of course, you said that the, the, the character, characteristic failing of our students at these elite institutions is a kind of vacuous openness. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of elevating tolerance to be not simply a prime liberal virtue, but the only virtue. But of course, the irony is that we're now living through a period where tolerance itself has been enrolled, as you were suggesting, into the index prohibitorum of uh, reactionary vices, because you only tolerate that which you disapprove of, but are, for other reasons are willing to countenance discussion of. I agree. I think we're, you know, disintegration is, um, there, there's very powerful centrifugal forces that we're dealing with. So you have, you know, someone like Francis Fukuyama you know, writing the end of history, and then instantly his thesis is disproved by events on the ground. You know, where there, remember, I remember Yugoslavia, he probably does too, but, um, so uh, uh, it's, it's, it's curious, the, um, this dialectic of openness and the sort of uh, definition of cultural identity, and it's there in, in, in great tension. Well, one of the things that I observed in the election in 2016 and thinking about it just made me very sensitized to how widespread the motifs of openness are across all elite opinion. It's only now, it's only now in the last year or so that Silicon Valley has, is no longer in the they cannot do anything wrong view. But I mean, I think Kevin McCarthy, you know, has spontaneous orgasms about Silicon Valley's creativity, innovation, innovation is going to be the key to the future, et cetera, et cetera. And like I said, then you look and you think, wait a minute, the campaign that actually won the election, it actually ran on exactly the opposite of that. How could he possibly have succeeded? I mean, how can you possibly succeed when you, you actually run on exactly the contrary motifs, the opposite motifs? Well, it's a strong indication that there's a lot of voter demand and dissatisfaction mm -hmm. with the dominant motifs and what is wrought in our society. And there's demand for some of these more solid images and motifs in our public life, and I'm the sort of person that thinks, well, you know, voters aren't really stupid. And they often, you know, they, they can be right about things. Mm -hmm.
So I think it's very true in that higher education. I think the presidents of these elite universities are very scared um, because they don't have no idea, first of all, what it is that they're actually running because it's all so it's all so disintegrated, and they have no sense of what they're supposed to rally people around to overcome this rancor and bitterness. Mm -hmm. what, what are they going to rally? People? You know, I would think diversity. Right, diversity, which is Knocking just well, that's just redescribing the problem, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Saying that you know um, that's we're not diverse enough. We're, <laughs> we're at each other's throats. Nobody nobody really feels like they belong. There's no unifying sense of what the mission of the university is. Well, we need more diversity then to solve this problem. <laughs> James and then Jim. All right. Well, I, I well, first want to say that was a fascinating talk. Thank you very much. Just for one reason, the, the way you lay out the coherence of Trump's symbolic program, which I think is presented to us as so it's this, it's that, it's the other thing, but it does have a coherence. And it is Kirky in, in many ways, although I never would have said that until hearing your talk. Mm. And I wonder if, if, if Trump, in a way, is the most Kirkian Republican we've seen in the generation. I mean, let's also consider he made his stand in the heartland the way Kirk did. <coughs> and he was a, he, Trump is a kind of bohemian Tory, or Tory bohemian. I mean, his lifestyle is kind of bohemian, and yet he <laughs> comports himself also in a very Tory way. So I guess the takeaway is, you know, perhaps Kirk is a winning mode. You can win with Kirk. I wonder, and I never would have thought that before. <laughs> <laughs> but to, to your point, James, I mean, I think that, you know, whether it's Bob Dole or Mitch Daniels, there's a certain kind of Republican politician who embodies Kirkian kind of Main Street sort of things, but doesn't run on them, right? And so what you do is you run on the dominant motifs of creativity, openness, innovation, but you project to people a reassurance that it's not going to get out of hand. Mm -hmm. And we've, the, the, the American Republican Party has kind of adopted that as its strategy, that the liberals are basically right, but yes. we'll do a much better job yeah. of implementing it, more responsible job, and we'll keep, we won't just go crazy the way they often do. Right. And you get Trump, who's actually running against these dominant themes. And in that sense, where Kirk is, like I said, when I read him 30 years ago, I just didn't quite know what to do with it all. You know, because it just seems so, it's like Burke, in that he, it all runs on rhetoric and not on syllogism. And now I sort of, <laughs> after Trump, I was rereading Professor's conference thinking, oh, it's good grief, it's just a lot of it's the same. You know, done in a much different way with a very different, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not as blunt, blunt as Trump is, but it's very similar. Jim? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Rusty. Uh, very provocative comments. As against the disintegration, let me posit a somewhat different narrative, which would be polarization. You probably don't disagree with that. So that the country's divided itself apparently into two different nations, uh, divided by party, by ideology, by religion, by race and ethnicity, by geography, all these ways, overlapping. And they're more or less at war with one another. They have different visions of the nation. You describe the multicultural nation without any borders, uh, open to everything, except the one thing that they're not open to is something from the right. They're closed to that. Uh, and they want to get rid of that, versus this other vision that you've described, this Kirkian vision of the nation and a national community. So these two things are pretty much teed up here today uh, with Trump versus the Democrats, and it's being fought out in the political world. I think one of these two sides is going to win this war. That's right. I don't know which side is going to win it. Um, now, going back to Whitaker Chambers, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm on the winning side because the other side that you described is a kind of dissolving philosophy. And that's always easier to, uh, that's, it's e easier to win a war waging from that standpoint than it is to defend something coherent. So I guess my thought is, is that right, what I've just described? If the other side wins, what happens? What kind of, what kind of polity do we inherit? 
if that's the case. Mm -hmm. Now, I suppose this, this internal war could continue indefinitely without resolution. Uh, I somehow don't think that it will. Obviously, our disadvantage is that you know they control all these air, these all these institutions which articulate ideas, and we have some of it, but we're somewhat outgunned. We have better ideas, but they have more firepower. So anyway, so that's a kind of a different narrative. Yeah, I would I would submit that there aren't two nations. I think a supermajority of Americans want to believe that their inheritance is noble and that their country is their home, supermajority. So what it is is really a, it's a complicated political situation, obviously, but it, it really is an elite, largely an elite consensus about the future. And it's a center right, center left consensus. It's not the case that the, the right, the right had its own version of globalism. It's a market-driven one rather than a bureaucratically-driven one. But there's a lot of similarities, which is why Trump was opposed by the Republican establishment just as ardently as the Democratic establishment until he got the nomination and it was a kind of people slowly moved over. Not all of them, but they slowly moved over. But, but I, I don't think anybody wanted him to become the nominee in the Republican establishment. So we have a problem. The political crisis is coming not because the nation is divided. The political crisis is coming because we have a leadership class that has increasingly become detached from the people who they actually govern. This is why I'm hopeful about the future. I just don't, we're not divided ethnically. This is not true. We're divided racially, I would accept that, black, white, but we're not divided white, brown, yellow. And with the right leadership, uh, that, this, would, this would not be a problem. An example I give of this is Romney 2016. 47% makers, takers. And then you have Clinton deplorables. So we have center-right candidates saying half the country is basically losers. And then you got a center-right left candidate in Clinton saying half the country are basically losers. <coughs> I mean, how you can't run. You, of course we're going to have a political crisis in a democratic society when our leadership class thinks that most of the people that they have to govern are kind of losers. That we, they'd be better off if they just took drugs and died. Uh, we could replace them with immigrants. Uh, which Bill, Bill Crystal said, said that today. Yeah. Yes. And he's not the only one that said it. Uh, Brett Stevens has said it. Uh, uh, people on the left say it. In effect, when they say that we're going to have a majority-minority nation, what they're saying is we'll finally uh, throw off the terrible legacy of racism when, when the immigrants outnumber the, the racists. Um, so, so my sense, Jim, is that Yes, I do think we're in a, this is a, this is a deep, Trump suggests that there's a deep conflict about the kind of future our country's going to have. And, and that's why the battle's so intense. That's why we all feel like there's way more at stake here than just what the tax laws are going to look like or, or even who's going to get appointed as judge. And I think, well, what's the outcome? If, if we lose, we, you know, the United States functions as the foundation of a, Kind of global oligarchy that ramps up these big giant global corporations. They want big giant global bureaucracies to interlink with, in order to take the friction and, and uncertainty out of the global economic system, and also to manage the you know difficult recalcitrant people. So that's I think the future. The future is um, I would say if you want democratic accountability in a post aristocratic era. When an aristocratic era, honor uh, ensures the accountability of the few, the powerful few, to serve the interests of the many. And in a democratic culture, elections uh, and the national form provide the mechanism to hold the powerful few accountable to the good of the many. And in a globalized future, it's just not clear to me because the powerful few are the same, come from the same social class as the that run the corporations come to the same social class as the people who do the regulating. So I, 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 I'm not, I think what's at stake is the, is the modern democratic project. Jeff, then Dan, then Jeff. I think my comments relate to that quite closely. There, there's a passage in Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men where Ann Stanton goes to Jack Burden 
and asks him to convince Adam Staten to take over directorship of the hospital because she and Willie start to try to convince him he won't do it, he won't do it. And then Jack says to her, well, I can, I can get him to change his mind. And she said, well, how will you do that? He said, I will change the picture in his head, right? uh, which in that case meant he had this image of his father and he had to change the, the image he had of his father. And that's, I think you're right. That's what politics is, right? It's in a certain sense the pictures that we have. And the picture of the left, and um, college campuses are, are ripe for this sort of stuff, is a world where all educated people are tourists. Right? We have a new, on, our, on my campus, we have a new dean of internationalization. <laughs> I, I will you say You can't that, make this stuff up. No, you can't make this stuff up. It's a dean of internationalization. Uh, as I pointed out to my, de I, I, I had to parse that one. I think, I, I think it's, that's a noun made out of a verb made out of an adjective made out of a noun as far as I can figure it out and part of the the new policy they want to put forward is that uh, all graduating students will through the course of the curriculum receive a global passport right? because that's part of our mission is that we're preparing global leaders uh, we're the only school in America doing that, by the way, uh, <laughs> preparing uh, students for lives of leadership in a global society. Uh, but they're going to get a global passport, right? Uh, and, and the idea is they will have, and all the buzzwords, cross-cultural competencies and, and, and all these sorts of things. But these are people who will never be rooted anywhere, right? I mean, they're just going to be floating around the surface of the globe. Uh, they'll have the financial means to do this because uh, we're not an elite school, but we're a selective school. That's something. Uh, and that's the vision, right, of, and, and part of that vision is that every student who's going to go traversing the globe will be able to do so in a way exactly how they want to do it. You know, in other words, if, if they want to do it as a man, they can do it as a man. If they want to do it as a woman, they can do it as a woman. If they want to do it uh, as both, they can do it as both, right? I mean, part of that vision is that every person gets to be the kind of person exactly as they understand themselves to be. And everybody has to sort of accept that. I mean, that's part of that openness thing, right? Which is not like in families where you don't get to be the person you understand yourself to be. You have to be a certain kind of person. So I think that's one vision. That's one picture that's being given. The problem that I have with your assessment of Trump is that there's really not a compelling alternative picture being given. I mean, if you think about it, the most well-known counter-narrative to the this kind of globalist dream, was J.D. Vance's hillbillyology, which is, you know, this is the other world. This is the picture of the other world. And it's a dystopian picture. Right? I mean, it's a, it's a horrible picture. And so, you know, part of what people like that face is, okay, so how do you go home if there's no place to go home to? And I don't think the nation state is going to satisfy that itch. I mean, in the end, you still have to have embodied, embedded communities uh, where people can go make things, grow things, do things, raise families, right? And, and, you know, you can have somebody like, you know, Kevin Williamson who says, oh, right, if that famous piece he had in National Review, let, let those places die out. You know, they, uh, you know, they're all dysfunctional, but with mathematics anyway. But there, there is, among Trump supporters, right, they, they, they don't like the picture of the globalist vision, but I'm not sure there's an alternative vision being given. I mean, th these are places where you have high rates of opioid addiction and meth addiction and so forth. Um, these are places where you've got failing economies. You know, these are places where you've got high crime rates and, and stuff like that. So it's, I'm not sure that Trump has given an alternative picture, and I'm not sure he's the person who can give an alternative picture. Whereas I think Kirk does give a sort of alternative picture. It's very real, very concrete, not abstract. Well, uh, Jim pointed out, we don't really have a lot of intellectual assets. And moreover, the assets we do have are tend to be, I mean, the way we rise and certainly academic as a conservative is as a libertarian, which is simply, you know, to be a different form of the openness uh, project. So we do face a difficulty there. And uh, I do think it's really imperative that we start to take the, Kirk, I, I don't, like I said, I don't find, you can't republish Russell Kirk and have it work, it seems to me, because our job is to sort of think about, well, how do these kind of characteristic Kirkian motifs, what do they actually look like in a, in a salient way in 2018 or in 2020 as we come up? And you're right, of course the president is not the most articulate guy in the world. Uh, but I mean, 
you know, there's an intermediate language. But I think Warren Cass in the National Interest has a very important article about a work-based economic vision. Yeah. And it's basically, it's basically an article to help establishment Republicans become populist nationalists. It's a smooths the way for them. Now that's a kind of wonkish approach. I'm a person who believes strongly that with Kirk that politics has a very powerful symbolic element to it. And so part of our job is, well, okay, what does it mean to speak of America as a home? What is our national heritage? How can our national heritage be rearticulated, reframed? We have to be constantly involved in this process of reframing the American story. And also I think there's a concrete political, cultural politics does have a political, political dimension. And my, one of my concerns is I don't think the conservative movement, as I said, part of its it disables itself by saying that we should never use political power to do anything cultural. And so what is the education department doing to punish the multicultural agenda in schools and to encourage a healthier pedagogy about civic education? I don't, I don't think they're doing anything. So I think that you know this is a, these are areas where we need to apply ourselves, try to articulate a, an image for people. Dan and then Gerald. You know, I, uh, I'm persuaded that uh, we can certainly envision Russell Kirk showing some sympathy for some of Trump's intuitions and his opposition to globalism and political correctness. But I also imagine he would be repulsed rather by the person. I'm thinking of my friend Harvey Mansfield, who is not prissy, who uh, is the scourge of academic political correctness. But he wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal in the summer of 2016 called Trump is not a gentleman. Harvey's a gentleman. And uh, now, by the way, maybe we don't need a gentleman in the White House right now to take mm -hmm. on uh, the, the dragons that needed to be taken on. But I do think one of the obstacles to, and I say I voted for Trump, I don't share all of these concerns, but I do know decent people who are fully committed to a conservative moral and political vision, who have some sympathy for these larger concerns about openness and emancipatory cultural politics, who nonetheless see Trump as a bad messenger or vehicle that, uh, you know, who want to believe that character and statesmanship, or statesmanship has something to do with character, Etc. So I think we have to come to terms with those kinds of objections. I don't think those objections mean one is obliged to be a never-Trumper, but it does seem to me that, you know, this issue of the president's uh, vulgarity and impulsiveness and uh, name-calling and all of that, I, although I rather like Pocahontas. And, uh, <laughs> um, but it, is, it does seem to me an issue that those of us who... I have some hopes that something constructive and something renewing of the American proposition could come out of the Trump presidency have to confront. So you agree with Mark in that sense? I do. I mean, Mark's point I do. that uh, we're in a difficult situation, right? All the good people are in the grip of a failing consensus, which they are going to insist on until they are, because uh, they also have a lot of money and power, and it works well for them. Openness is a... Openness is great if you know if you have access to executive lounges at airports. It's a nice idea. So they're going to have to be bloodied before they wake up and realize, and they have. People are entertaining now questions about well, what's really wrong with our country, and you know what really. And people who have this crazy open borders ideology are saying, well, you know, maybe that's not going to work, and maybe we need to think a little bit about this or. Yeah, people are dying of drug overdose, opioid. Yeah, okay, we probably need to focus on that. J.D. Vance would have never sold any books if it hadn't have been for, for Trump. But I agree, it's hard, right? He stands up there and says, well, wait a minute, in what sense is our inheritance noble? He's not very noble. I just think we're in a situation as intellectual leaders on the right where I think I really appreciate Dan McCarthy's points about the, um, the kind of anti-politics or the way in which we avoid actually thinking and acting politically. And one of them is this kind of prissy moralism. You know, it, it could be that we have to make very hard judgments about what we're willing to put up with and what we're not willing to put up with. But you know, for those of us who, uh, I think of my friends at Claremont, you know, 
They've spent 40 years talking about the importance of renewing the study of statesmanship and political philosophy, and that means, you know, Aristotelian political science, it means Cicero, it means Lincoln, it means George Washington, it means Winston Churchill, it means Donald Trump. There, there is an issue here, which is... But Dan, I, come on. No, no, I agree with look, you. I agree with you. I know what you're saying, but... I, mean, I agree with you about pushing moralism. One of, the, one of the most important moral qualities I want in a political leader is that they don't lie to me. Yeah. And one of the ways I've been lied to for years, decades, is people promise to do things that they have no intention of doing once they're in power. Yes. And, and, and he said, I'm going to appoint pro-life judges. Yeah. And he's utterly indifferent to and all, by the of way, the, all the things that would have caused every other politician to. So having a certain fortitude, and, and there is a kind of political integrity in actually running on the positions that you intend to, um, to govern by. Yeah, and it, it may be that a politics of prudence today does demand a willingness to not treat civility as the prime political virtue, but to take on a series of sophistries and lies that have been institutionalized. And, the and also, too, politics. I would say this in terms of virtue, too. I mean, I'll go back to the 47% deplorables. If you listen to him and his, um, he never attacks ordinary people. He always attacks elite people. He, um, he also doesn't attack unprovoked. Oh, it doesn't. I, I, I'm perfectly happy with unilateral attacks. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so, 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 as long as it's on the right he, target. He, he doesn't do that, though. <laughs> yeah, you attack him, wins. and then he attacks your back. Yeah. Gerald? Two brief points on what Jim was saying about sort of our nation. I, I, you know, I, I remain somewhat optimistic, really, for two reasons. First, I do believe that it's that the national split is really elite, everybody else, and maybe not so much two nations. Although you know that could depends on how you slice it. But I think that insofar as that elite openness opinion has succeeded, it was succeeded through a message of you will be more free with us than you would if you stayed at home, or you would if you followed this sort of antiquated sort of nationalism. I think that perhaps Trump's election, as well as others, are showing the people who might otherwise be sympathetic, that that's in fact not true. That you're allowed to speak about fewer things, and that going into a college is not an intellectually liberating experience, but it's more of a narrowing experience. And there was just that poll recently about how people feel about political correctness, where many people across the spectrum and across all kinds of different ethnic categories said, well, I feel like I, I could speak less freely now than I did 20 years ago without any, you know, maybe any particular political persuasion. So I think that, that, that there's a crack in the idea that this regime is actually more open and that people will realize it's not as safe a space or what have you as, well, as they yeah. anticipated. Right? And I would say that ordinary people don't trust the lead, their leaders. I'm in a cab you know, going to a JFK during the primary season. I asked the cab driver, Bukhari and Jew, you know, Jew from Baku, Azerbaijan. Been in country for 20 years, married, kids. Who are you going to vote for? He said, Trump. Trump. I said, well, come on, he's anti-immigrant, isn't he? He goes, ah, ah, I don't want my children to grow up in a country that doesn't get respected. And so uh, <laughs> and I, I think that that's actually that's the noble, that's the noble inheritance. He yeah. wants something to pass on to his kids. I think that's actually widely felt, and I think there's people feel pretty widely that this, this whole Confederate monument mania, wow, something's wrong. And ooh, so I... I'm I'm a, I'm kind of optimistic that the other side, and I and I think part of Trump's political importance is that he is a, he evokes extremism in response to him that shows the true colors of people who could otherwise sort of will take the slow path to this goal, whereas he's forcing their hand. I don't think even close to a majority of the country want to be run according to those principles. Dan McCarthy. Well, Kirk did have a certain uh, degree of respect for a kind of genteel Republican. After uh, Nixon left office, uh, he was happy to have Gerald Ford as president, and he recommended that Ford appoint Elliot Richardson, a kind of establishmentarian Republican, uh, as uh, vice president. So uh, Kirk did have a certain soft spot for kind of you know refined uh, sort of white shoe Republican. On the other hand, Kirk did also have a, a background with rough and tumble characters as well. You know, he invited a, a hobo into his house and, you know, who became sort of his manservant or butler. The hobo had kind of a criminal record and, you know, drug addiction problems and alcohol problems. Kirk mixed with plenty of different kinds of American characters, some of them quite vulgar, when he was in the um, Great Salt Lake uh, Proving Grounds uh, during World War II. So I suspect he would have had a degree of tolerance for, you know, sort of rough and tumble characters, even in leaders. 
that perhaps people who like Harvey Mansfield, who've spent more time in the academy than in you know society at large, might have. As far as the question of how you can combine uh, the Trumpian uh, agenda in a broad way with the Kirkian sensibility uh, and what that leads to in terms of policy. Rusty had mentioned uh, the Oren Cass essay. I, I also want to mention, and I think uh, Roger will be glad to hear this, a new book published by Encounter, namely uh, Frank Buckley's uh, The Republican Workers' Party, which is precisely an attempt to have not just, interestingly enough, not just a, a set of policies, but the book actually just as much focuses on the idea of changing the way Republicans think about policy, that it's not a matter of either, on the one hand, having a plan for economic efficiency, which you are then going to force Americans to become uh, sort of sprockets and cogs within the wheels of this great machine, but also that uh, simply moralizing and simply pursuing a moral rearmament crusade, as Buckley calls it, uh, is also futile, and lecturing the poor and telling them they're responsible for their failures uh, is not effective either. Buckley wants to see policies that actually help people economically and, and, you know, not in terms of handouts, but in terms of creating opportunities in terms of removing the barriers that prevent uh, people from rising in terms of their uh, where they stand in, in class. Brian? Well, it was, it was a follow-up to what Gerald said, but Dan started talking about it as well. It's, it's just a, a question I have of how Kirkian, in a way, the Trump economic policies are. Uh, when you really look at what's happened, what has revitalized the economy, it's been deregulating. It has been cutting taxes. Even the trade deals that Trump is pushing are about opening markets in other countries so that our businesses can sell into those countries. So I, I just wonder if between the politics of imagination and the practical realities of policy change, whether Trump is all that different from a traditional conservative on the policy side. Well, the Wall Street Journal editorial page doesn't – they like the tax bill, but they every morning paper has a story about – somebody suffering from his tariffs or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Right, I guess I just think the, the tariffs seem to be pushing toward fairer trade deals, not right. setting up not permanent tariffs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But yeah. manufacturing employment is up and yes. wages are up in manufacturing for the first time in quite well, a while. Well, I think that's from the deregulation. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jim? I was just going to just commenting on Rusty. I mean, we've lived through, uh, you've described it, two revolutions, really. We lived through the 60s, the so-called libertarian cultural revolution, and that's ongoing. And then we lived through something called a market revolution of the 1980s, and that's ongoing, free markets. So, I, I, you know, interpreting what you've said is that these things are kind of on, going along on common trajectories. Globalization, openness, the whole thing and that Donald Trump has uh, begun to blow a whistle on the thing. And that would suggest that the era that we've lived through, what is it, 50, 60 years now? 70, I would say. Yeah, okay. I'd go from 1945 oh, to present. All right, the so, trajectory is all deconsolidation, yeah. openness. I but think. these two revolutions, cultural and market, are kind of maybe exhausting themselves. I view, and they're now creating the problems that, whether it's the collapse of households being the kind of epicenter of the crisis caused by the cultural liberations of the 60s uh, or and the difficulty of a global economy to provide a basis for middle-class life in the developed West. And both of those are creating, I think, are, you know, so the J.D. Vance book is really about both of those. They are converging, dysfunctional people in a, an economy that doesn't have a place for them. That's creating the problems that our political culture is going to have to try to struggle to solve for the next generation. And our political class says, yes, we have problems. And the thing is, we haven't gone far enough. And so their typical answer to the problems is we just need more. We just need more diversity, more liberation, or we just need more market globalization. And eventually, the price factor equalization theorem will take hold, and the market will solve these problems of underemployment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I see is that the Sanderzite socialist left it represents people on the left saying, well, wait a minute, this has run its course and now it's actually causing the problems that we have to deal with. And then I see the sort of Trumpian, these are gestures on the right of people saying, no, wait a minute, we've, we have to address these problems. And so both of those two wings, they're both reconsolidating. They, they have sort of denser boundary-oriented motifs that they put forward to the voters, and the voters like it. And it's not because the voters like it because they're 
they're, they're turning towards socialism or they want to go and live in the Soviet Union. They like it because it, they intuit that we need to rebalance in the direction of permanent things. Walter. Yeah, just a quick comment. Uh, <clears throat> Jim Pearson asked a question about 10 minutes ago, what, do we, what will happen if we lose? And I think we have a, an answer from a no less an authority than Hillary Clinton, which is a return to civility. As opposed to maybe the ethos of the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee. Right. But then we're going to get kicked, too. This That's the former Attorney General said, right? It's like Tacitus. Roger, it's like Tacitus said of the Roman legions. They've made a desert and call it peace. That's right. That's right. By the way, in answer to that question, my fear, and I think other people have commented on this Kalgaki said in the in public discussion. The academic culture that Roger wrote about in the early 90s that we've all talked about, we've given it names in the last 20 or 30 years, political correctness, it's become more, I've been teaching for 34 years, it's become more militant, more aggressive, more stupid, more uh, totalitarian. It is no longer a phenomena only of our colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. I think the importance of the Kavanaugh debacle yeah. was that culture is now part of our politics. And that's truly frightening because that's an ethos fundamentally incompatible with self-government and with uh, Republican government of any form. So that's a time bomb. That, that self-containing of that quasi-totalitarian politics on college campuses wasn't going to last forever. And, and uh, this isn't going away. This this leak, leak uh, movement of that uh, that kind of politics, with identity politics, but with also these sort of Jacobin methods into our regular politics, is something deeply disturbing. But I think, uh, Dan, I think it's going to uh, the the big losers in this are center left, mm. establishment yeah. Democrats. Because I think they scare the American people. Well, no, it's because it's going to consume them, not us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I mean the words, the, the, you know, if, if I get attacked as a racist or whatever, you know, I mean, I've been through that for 30 years as a conservative right, in academic right. environments and so on. But you, you saw Pritzker's campaign staff filed a, law, a civil rights lawsuit against him and his campaign for $7.5 million because they used their minority campaign employees in minority neighborhoods. So they were, they were redlining their campaign staff. And so that's just a sign, it seems to like me, that. that the most vulnerable people to identity politics are Ivy League college presidents and mainline Goldman Sachs liberals. Right. Those it's are the it's most it's vulnerable what we call people. a collateral benefit. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we would come to an optimistic you know, resolution. I mean, just, just a quick comment on uh, tying that together with what uh, Brian said earlier. I, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about Trump is that he's bringing the mode of politics back into play that's gone out of play. I mean, politics has become, uh, Jonathan Rauch called them, empathetic, non-self-interested decision makers, right? So, the, the, I mean, the whole globalist vision is run by technocrats. Right? These are people who don't have to negotiate, they don't have to deal, they don't have to compromise, right, because they know how things are supposed to run, they're the experts. Uh, and what Trump does is, is he always starts from a position of dealing, right? I mean, these things are going to be negotiated. So when you're dealing with, like on college campuses, we try to deal, we get run over, right? Yeah. And, and, that, and so that's the assumption that they have, right? <laughs> that they shouldn't have to deal, right? Because they've got the truth on their side or they've got history on their side or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so somebody like Trump just gives them the vapors because he says, oh, no, 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 it's, it's going to be about dealing. It's yes. not going to be about me just letting you roll me over. Right. 